Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with scholar and writer Imani Perry. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. My name is Shannon Rosner, and I am honored to serve Chautauqua Institution as Chief of Staff and Vice President of Strategic Initiatives. <laughs> Thank you. I promise there'll be a lot more to clap for this morning. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the amphitheater this morning. Um, as you can tell, we're starting a little early in order to accommodate our friends from On Being as they record these programs for broadcast at a later date. Uh, before this morning's lecture, I do have a few announcements. If you were here yesterday, you know that our format is slightly different this week. Our usual audience Q&A will begin at 11.35 and run for around 10 to 15 minutes. And then we'll let our guests complete the program. As usual, you may submit questions through our ushers, who will, will circulate shortly before Q&A and who can provide slips of paper and pencils. You may also submit questions throughout the program on Twitter via the hashtag CHQ2019. You will have a brief opportunity to meet this morning's interviewee, Imani Perry, on the back porch of the amphitheater immediately following the lecture. Please note that out of respect for her busy schedule, we do limit the number of people admitted to the porch and ask that you keep your, your greetings brief. Professor Perry will host a book signing at 1.15 p.m. today in the author's alcove adjacent to the Chautauqua Bookstore. Today we celebrate Chautauqua Institution's 145th birthday. <laughs> With, with a slew of family-friendly activities as part of annual Fund Day, beginning at noon on Bester Plaza, weather permitting. Our traditional Old First Night ceremony begins right here in the amphitheater at 6.45 p.m., followed by a performance by Tycoza as part of our family entertainment series. Enjoy birthday cake afterward at a number of locations mapped out in today's daily, and then join us at 9.30 p.m. for a family movie presentation of Incredibles 2 on Bester Plaza. If there's rain, we'll play the movie in Smith Wilkes Hall, and I would please have you note that that's a change from the original rain location that was noted in the weekly program and in the daily today. Also at 4 p.m. today in Holtquist 101, Sarah Kaufman, author and Pulitzer Prize-winning dance critic for the Washington Post, We'll discuss her book, The Art of Grace, on moving well through life. Examining grace's many forms, Kaufman's book draws on the arts, sports, the humanities, and everyday life, as well as the latest findings in neuroscience and health research to illustrate how our bodies and our brains are designed for grace. A book signing will follow in Holtquist 101. Finally, out of respect for this morning's speakers and audience members around you, and so that you don't make an unintended guest appearance on the eventual radio broadcast of today's program, please, please do silence your cell phones and refrain from using flash photography. This concludes the morning's announcements.
Support for this week's programs is provided by the Oliver and Mary Langenberg Lectureship Fund. Additional support for today's program is provided by the Margaret Miller Newman Lectureship Fund. Margaret Miller Newman was a granddaughter of Chautauqua co-founder Lewis Miller. She served as historian of the Smith Memorial Library at Chautauqua and was prominent in historical and preservation societies at Chautauqua and in Western New York, as well as the Chautauqua Women's Club and Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle. Please join me in thanking the Langenberg and Miller families for their legacies of service to and support of Chautauqua Institution. Our host again this morning is Krista Tippett, host of the popular public, public, public radio program On Being. And today's conversation, as I said, will be broadcast on the show at a later date. In addition to her radio work, Ms. Tippett is founder and leader of the On Being Project, curator of the Civil Conversations Project, and the best-selling author of, among several other titles, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Joining her in conversation today is Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies and Faculty Associate in the Program in Law and Public Affairs and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Princeton University. That's a longer title than the ones at Chautauqua. <laughs> a scholar of legal history, cultural studies, and African American studies, Professor Perry's work often focuses on multifaceted issues, such as the influence of race on law, literature, and music. She is the author of five books, including Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, the winner of the 2019 Pan America Bograd Weld Award for Biography, and a New York Times notable book for 2018. Her newest book, Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, will be published in September. Other works include May We Forever Stand, A History of the Black National Anthem, which was a 2019 NAACP Image Award nominee, and Vexy Thing on Gender and Liberation. She also wrote the notes and introduction to the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of the Narratives of Sojourner Truth, and Professor Perry received a bachelor's degree from Yale University, her JD from Harvard Law School, and a PhD from Harvard University. We are so honored. <laughs> we are so honored to host her today on this return visit to Chautauqua. Please join me in offering a warm Chautauqua welcome to Amani Perry, Amani Perry and Krista Tippett. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> I'm so happy to bring Imani Perry back to Chautauqua. I, I brought her here once before when we did a week of uh, programs on the stage of the Hall of Philosophy. And it was a day of biblical rains. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Torrential. We actually had to stop the recording two or three times. We had to stop the conversation two or three times. Um, and and um, because, you know, just the nature of that, that space uh, that, and the rain just deafened it. And mm -hmm. so we were able to create a program from it, but it was, it was hard. The production was complicated. And so... Um, 
I'm delighted to bring her back, and we will not be interrupted. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, that was wonderful. It was wonderful, despite the rain. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and many things have changed. I was also, we were, um, the, the sound is incredible in this amphitheater. Mm. You know, congratulations. Um, also, there was no tweeting back then. Right. No questions <laughs> by tweet. Um, we talked a little bit yesterday about the many definitions of the word grace, and mm. this really is a week of expansively taking that on. Um, I wanted just to read uh, a, a few lines from Imani's new book called Breathe, which we will discuss um, in just a few minutes, um, where you actually take on a, a one definition of grace. And mm. we may come back to this in the conversation, but I want to read it just as we start. In the Catholic tradition, there is a form of grace, the sanctifying one, that is the stuff of your soul. It is not defined by moments of mercy or opportunity. It is not good things happening to you. Rather, it is the good thing that is in you, regardless of what happens. You carry this down through generations, same as the epigenetic trauma of a violent slave master society. But the grace is the bigger part. It is what made the ancestors hold on so that we could become. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, one of the things I think about a great deal in these years is um, the fact that in my profession of journalism in particular, um, and in the academy, I think, mm. we're very sophisticated and skilled at investigating and telling the catastrophic and destructive narrative and story of our time, mm -hmm. and not as sophisticated as telling that story of uh, the generative narrative of our time and who and what we are and can become. Yes. Uh, which is not to deny what is going wrong, but it is also to take this other part of us seriously that I feel you just named. Um, and, you know, and as we're going to discuss in your life and your story, you contain so many, in your personal story, you t is touched on so many of the stories of our time. Mm. Um, so I want to delve into that for all of us in the room okay. and everyone who might eventually listen um, to help to see the world and our time through that lens of your life. And I want um, to start... But you, you, were, you describe yourself as a cradle Catholic. Yes. Born in Alabama. Indeed. Um, <laughs> how? Oh, there you go. See? <laughs> There's something. It's divine intervention. It is. There's a, sign. There's a jinx. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> a moment of silence while the alarm winds down. Um, just, but, but one thing that's so interesting, too, that in some place I found in your writing, you're a cradle Catholic. Um, no. <laughs> I don't know what that alarm means related to the word Catholic. I'm trying to work it out. <laughs> is, it, is it the weekly um, tornado alarm test or something? Is it like the... Okay. 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 It just does not work with radio. Um, but you also describe yourself as a child of the fragments. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> we have to let that die down. Okay. 
Four or five seconds? Okay. Oh, cycles. Oh, I see. Four or five? So that should be three, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do we have... I don't know, I guess we could make small talk up here, but I, I'm not prepared for small talk. Um, <laughs> okay, this is really... Bringing Imani Perry to Chautauqua means that... <laughs> yes. This is the, the last, last one. one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I guess when what you have is a speaker, they just talk through it. But when we're recording it, we can't do that. Okay. Um, yeah. Cradle Catholic, and yet also a child of the fragments yes. of Christianity. Yes. And, and really multiple traditions. I yeah. mean, I... Um, you know, there's, I, in my own life, there's this um, kind of dance between a very kind of, um, kind of traditional black southern coming of age um, is my foundation. And then on the other hand, my family's Catholic, which is rather unusual yes. um, for, for, uh, for that part of the world. And, um, you know, and I... I grew up in Massachusetts and I spent summers in both Alabama and Chicago and in all of those places there's these sort of multiple encounters both with a variety of types of people yeah. and also um, spiritual traditions right? and so um, as a consequence uh, for me as a I mean I think of myself as a seeker mm -hmm. um, and I respond to that which resonates within mm -hmm. um, so my spiritual life is um, as kind of promiscuous as my intellectual interests. <laughs> um, and you guys, so, well, let's say interdisciplinary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I just, I, I yeah. like to take, so um, whether it's threads from, um, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism, but also Hinduism and Yoruba traditions that um, speak to me, I follow that, yeah. that, that pathway. Yeah. Um, and your, um, you know, what strikes me between the, uh, the time that, you know, we, we spoke in 2014 here mm, at Chautauqua. Gosh. I mean, and now. A lot it's has not happened. that many years, but it's, um, it's been a really tumultuous sh moment of great shift um, culturally. And, and something that strikes me that I don't think I saw in the same way when we spoke before. You know, your mother and grandmother were Catholic. Your mother, in fact, was a former nun for yes. a little while. Your great-grandmother was Baptist. Mm -hmm. Your your um, your birth father was Lutheran. Your father, who raised you, was Jewish and yes. white. Yes. Um, and and what tradition. I also see, <laughs> what I see writ large now, is you straddle so many American divides, not just mm -hmm. oh, yeah. black and white, but South and North. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Alabama, there's Chicago, there's Princeton, there's the religious and intellectual yes. um, polarization, and there's kind of a multi-class identity, which is really extraordinary in a moment like this. There's some words of James Baldwin at the beginning of your book which you named after these words of his, more beautiful and more terrible. Yes. The embrace and transcendence of racial inequality in the United States. 
He said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And I kind of feel like you and your person embody that prism. Um, thank you. I mean, I think that that is um, my experience. And, you know, I, the, the transition for me personally from sort of feeling like I'm this kind of strange person entering all of these worlds to actually un thinking about it as a source of insight um, and, a, and, and offering me a capacity to connect with a variety of people. I mean, that's part of my, the process of maturing. So recently, I was thinking about being a little girl in Chicago and having lots of friends who were undocumented, mm -hmm. largely from Mexico. When you were growing up? Yeah, when mm -hmm. I was growing up. Yeah. Um, and the window into that experience, including things like you couldn't, when I went to visit my friends, you couldn't knock on the door because there was this fear that it might be immigration, oh. right? And so, well, you would knock on the door, but you would, no one would answer. And then walking around the back steps and going through the basement and then also seeing my friends who were 10 and 11 navigating um, financial business work negotiations for their parents, right? Mm -hmm. That that, so that... Now, right in this moment in history, where in some ways we're repeating the worst parts of our history, right? So when you see children being um, ripped from their parents in a way that is reminiscent of slavery, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that really mm -hmm. is the repetition of the mm -hmm. worst parts of our history. I'm, for me, it's also a recollection uh, of those intimate relationships with children who had the burdens of adulthood on their shoulders. And oh. so, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to think about how do we more fully recognize each other as human and so in order to be more humane, and how do we shift what we talk about as political questions to ethical questions, mm. um, which is really where they belong. Mm. Um, and some of that is through, through story. Some of that, um, I think, has to be through encounter. And so um, to whatever, sort of whatever little little um, job my callings do, I think part of it is to sort of bring those stories um, through to add to the conversation. A mm -hmm. um, couple of things that that sparks in me. I mean, I also think, and I want this to run through our conversation today, you know, I like to, I have a long view of time, and I think that comes out of the kind of conversation I have. Um, and I like to play this. I like to play this thought experiment. What, you know, what will people looking back a hundred years from now? What will they actually see? Mm -hmm. um, and it may be that what we think is important that's going on, you know, is not at all what will rise to the surface. Right. Um, what I also know is that when time becomes history, there will be an us, right? They will look back at us as an us. As an us, yes. Um, although it's a very fraught thing to use the word we for any individual person now to use the word we and mean a lot of other groups. So that's interesting. <laughs> yes. And also that connection between human and humane, you know, in yeah. French, those, it's the same word, but somehow that move is, is where our salvation lies. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because one of the kind of reviewers in the process for my book on gender said, when you, was like, you keep using this word we, you know, that that's, and, and saw it as a problem, but the we shifts, right? So the we is a collective we, but it's also yeah. sometimes a, a smaller we. Um, in this moment, for me, especially with the question of 100 years in the future, the thing that um, 
I, I think about on a daily basis is the earth and yeah. the earth screaming. And, and I think about it also in terms of my personal history. So as a child of sort of the movements, right? Yeah. Um, I remember being five and six years old and the way that some folks thought, you know, the Greenpeace folks were kind of ridiculous. You care about trees and birds and not um, human beings suffering. Right. And at this point we've come to, I think fully, we, um, those of us who are people of conscience and who come to realize, you, you know, there's no separation of those questions, yeah. right? There's no separation of the question of, of, of the environment and human suffering and um, the wide variety of injustices and forms of violence. And so there's an imperative, I think, to think about we in the mm -hmm. global sense as much as we sort of break off in, um, in, in, in a multiplicity of kind of silos and, yeah. and factions, yeah. Yeah, and that's a, that's a complicated move for us to make. Uh, that Juggling all of that at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you wrote an article a few years ago, um, in 2016, I probably, called 2016 the year of black memoir. Yes. And you were talking about kind of a genre of books, Margot Jefferson's memoir, Negro Land, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. um, a book by Rosemary Freeney and Rachel Harding, I believe, mm -hmm. the child of Vincent. Uh, no, the, the that was Rachel was the, yeah the child of Vince, Vincent uh, Harding. Vincent yeah. Harding, yeah. Yes. Um, and I wasn't familiar with this book, honestly, called Remnants. Um, but here's something interesting you noted in that article that in 2011 there was a professor Kenneth Warren mm -hmm. um, who declared that there was no longer any such thing as African-American literature because we had the first black president in the White House. Right. And of course, where my mind went was in 1989, and I lived in divided Berlin in the 1980s, um, the declaration that this was the end of history. Right. And then at, at latest, on September 11, 2001, we understood that history was back and had never gone away. Absolutely. And we, it, I feel like that resonates also in your writing. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing to ask is what is the um, investment in declaring an end Right, and yeah. I do think that part of the investment comes from the desire for the new, right? And so while it's often a mischaracterization to say this is the end of history, the desire for the new is something that is meaningful, right? Yeah. A kind of uh, regeneration, rebirth, right? Um, after the kind of post-apocalyptic, I mean, that's why we have all of these sort of post-apocalyptic films and yeah. novels, right? We, we want to think about, well, what happens after disaster? How do we clear the air? But we don't, the air is never fully clear, right? right. So well, we just, right. We so don't we, want to actually dwell on that, what it's going to take to clear the air. Right, yeah. right. And we actually have to, we have to live with, with, with the residue. We have to live with the pollution. We have to let, you know, so, um, you, be, you know, you, you, you try to um, revitalize our commitments, um, but you can't wipe away history in the mm -hmm. midst of it. Right. right. And not just because we, it, there's a risk of repeating it, but it lives inside us. Right. Right? All of the ugliness dwells inside us, and we still try to do things that are meaningful and live meaningful lives. And, um, yeah, so... Yeah, and I... Um I think that 
you know, declaring the end of history in 1989 was not to take in the consequences of history that just hadn't shown themselves yet. Absolutely. Um, and when you and I spoke a few years ago, and when you wrote, when this article about the end of African-American literature was written, um, we had done, we had elected an African-American president, which was an extraordinary uh, thing mm -hmm. and um, accomplishment. And yet, one way I've thought about it is that that also served to surface all of the unfinished reckoning. Oh, absolutely. And that's not what everybody expected. You know, you wrote something that's very heart, <laughs> that was heartbreaking for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, somewhere, once upon a time, in 2008, you said, we were all wistful that our grandmother didn't live to see a black man become president. I mean, our grandmother in the collective sense, all of our departed, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, um, I mean, that night was extraordinary. Um, I was in Philadelphia, and we rode through the streets, and people were just in the streets cheering. Yeah. Um, but I've also written, after that, I'm so glad that my grandmother isn't here to see this moment. Um, I, I had this, you know, and you have these, these periods where you sort of are overwhelmed with grief and tears, and one of the things I said, and this is with respect to my mother, my mother came of age in Jim Crow, Alabama, so my mother lived her youth through a white nationalist society, and it has and come back. Openly, officially, white nationalist society. Yes. Yeah. And it has reared, that has, it has reared its head again. Mm -hmm. And the feeling of sort of what will it take, you know, what will it take for um, the, the, the nation, us collectively, to take seriously our creed um, as um, foundational, right? Um, not something that you can move in and out of, mm -hmm. right, based upon anxieties or fears or resentments, but mm -hmm. actually as a core value. Uh, and I, and the question, I don't know, right? I mean, and that's terrifying, right? To not, after all of these generations of struggle and resistance and transformation, to not know what we do now is, is frightening, frankly. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways um, you have been working through this mm -hmm. is uh, through this book you've written. Yes. Uh, we talked about all the many identities you have, and this is your identity as a mother. Yes, the most important one. Right. A mother of two sons, mm -hmm. a mother of two black sons. Yes. And so when you and I were at Chautauqua in 2014, they were 8 and 11. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> You know what was very, we were halfway through the second term of a black president. Um, what was very present in that moment was the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Yeah. And that's, we, we discussed that here. And mm. Ferguson and so many other milestones that are now part of our cultural imagination, for better and worse, mm -hmm. uh, were yet to come. Um, I remember you talking about how your sons just wept when George Zimmerman was acquitted. 
And I, across the years, I've, I've, I've actually thought of you and your sons. Yeah. Because oh, we had that conversation you. in yes. that moment. And I feel like in this book, you know, this is you both reflecting on what that has been um, and speaking to them and speaking to the rest of us. So, um, you know, you started with a quote, um, which you, you attribute to everybody and their mother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It must be terrifying to raise a black boy in America. Yes. I'm a bit tired of that question. Are you? I am. Okay. Um, because it often feels voyeuristic. Yeah, and I wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. And you say that in the book. Yeah. You say that, yes, that you feel people, you, you, you actually wrote, the indelicate assertion hangs in midair, people speculating as if this is a matter of fact, hungry for your suffering or crude with sympathy. Yeah. So I do, I do actually want to acknowledge that right here. Yeah, and it's, it's an echo of um, Du Bois's 1903 Souls of Black Folk when he talks about um, how does the, hearing the question, how does it feel to be a problem to which I seldom answer a word? Uh, and there is, and there's something to the fact that a hundred plus years later, the same question yeah. um, remains. Um, and part of the, what I'm trying to work through is that, yes, there is terror, but there's also incredible beauty and there's a way in which the repetition of the narrative of the terror um, uh, almost um, evacuates the full humanity of their lives right. and my life and right. also the incredible beauty. And so the question for me is both, you know, how do, how, how do we acknowledge this social reality of deep inequality, of mass incarceration, of um, death of innocent black youth, right? And also uh, recognize that, you know, that it's important to assert and reassert the full humanity and beauty of their lives and also to offer them a vision of their lives that is meaningful, yeah. right? Um, and that's what I'm trying to do, and to give them that tradition, right? Yeah. So that they understand these are not new questions. These are questions that are definitive of the black experience in the United States, and notwithstanding their persistence, um, we have gifted this society and this world with some extraordinary um, lessons and beauty and art and witness um, and a kind of witness that I think actually speaks to the entirety of the human experience. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what I want to invite you to do or ask you to do is, as we talk about this for the next few minutes, if, if the question I ask isn't a good question. <laughs> no, I mean, yes. if it's not a question you want to engage, I want you to tell me what question you oh. do want to engage. Okay, I will. Because I also feel like part of what's going on in this moment is, you know, um, at, those of us who are reckoning, we still don't, we still don't know how to, what did we say, clear the air. Yeah. Right? We're figuring this out We're as all we figuring go. it out. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually think part of what has to happen is this kind of, you know, you saying to me, I'm weary of that question. Yeah. And yet it's not that you don't want to talk. It's right. that we have to learn together and from each how other. And I have to learn yeah. from you how to engage this particular aspect of what, as you say, is not just a piece of your story, it's a piece of our story. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 
I, there's this question in the book that, that I, you know, it's again, tell me if this is not, that, you know, that you, you say, this is you speaking to your sons, you know, how do you become in a world bent on you not being and not becoming. Mm-hmm. And so I want it, as a mother, I read that, and I want to know, like, unfold right. how you see what it means, like, very particularly, how that question unfolds in the life of your sons and right. in your life with them as a mother. Absolutely. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean... Um, because and, your sons are also, you know, you... you sorry, I'm going to let you speak. But, you know, you talk about... It's true that if you begin your journey as a black or brown child in the United States from the very beginning of your life, you're less likely to receive decent medical care, quality education, have high, teachers who have high expectations of you, and less likely to live in a safe community. And that's not true of your sons. That's right. And yet... And yet. This question is something you live with. Absolutely. I th- so just... It was very important for me to acknowledge the class position uh, of my sons and the rarity of their experiences, not just for black children, but for children in the United States. I mean, they have uh, remarkable, you know, they live in a home literally with thousands of books. They have remarkable resources, right? And, at the, and, I, and I think it's important to acknowledge that because I don't want to participate in the fiction Right, that um, that often I think follows when those of us who are Black people have a large public voice to overrepresent our particular experience as mm-hmm. the experience. Right, um, and at the same time, they deal with race and racism every day of their lives. They see it. They know it. Um, I can give examples from the time they were five years old of encounters with racism. Um, in, in progressive schools, mm. right, on the street, right? Um, and so the reality is that I have to arm them not simply with kind of uh, a set of skills um, and intellectual tools that allow them to flourish in school and ethics and values, but also a way to make sense of the hostility that they encounter every day from people at times whose responsibility is to treat them as community members, right? right? That's the world they occupy, the people who are closest with them, sometimes people who they spend more hours with every day than they do with me, right? right? Um, And that's a complicated task. Um, And I mention it in part because I do want it to trigger for readers a kind of ethical reflection on their part, right? What is it, um, you know, all of these things, come up when we have these sort of cross-racial encounters or cross-class encounters, right? And we tend not to be reflective of them in part because as as James Baldwin talked about, Americans are addicted to innocence, right? We're so busy, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that thing I don't wanna be, that it becomes very hard to engage in correctives of our behavior. Um, So I want them to uh, be able to assess what they're experienced to not internalize um, the venom that sometimes to to have sort of antidotes at the ready, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. to feel as though there are spaces where they can return and actually um, acknowledge the peer, the experience of suffering right. and pain. Right, that that is part of the work of intimacy that they have with, or part of actually the, the actual work of intimacy uh, and, and our family. Right. 
Can you, give an, can you give an example of just maybe something that's happened recently that kind of illustrates this, yeah. how this turns up yes. innocently? Or, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, oh gosh, how many examples? Um, so actually, it's not that recent, but um, uh, there was uh, an incident... This is actually when my younger son was very small at school, uh, and a child said, um, you know, I don't, um, there was something, you know, they were doing some crafts, and she was like, I like you, you, and you, and I don't like you too. And my son, of course, being my son, said, is it because we're black? <laughs> and she said, yes. Mm. Um, and the, and my son said, well, that means you're a racist. Um, and the other child, you know, was really hurt, um, who was one of the ones put out, and my child had this indignation, and um, the teachers dealt with it appropriately. There was, you know, discussions and et cetera, et cetera. But what stuck with me is that the parents of the child who said this, who I had been seeing for never spoke to me, like never would look me in the eye and speak to me in school every day. Right. Who identify themselves as liberal, who identify themselves as progressive on race, mm -hmm. and not just wouldn't speak to me, but wouldn't speak to other black people. So they had taught right. this child this lesson, right? How was she to make sense of it any other way, right? right? I mean, so who never said anything, I assume, negative about black people, but you know, when you are, you, you see however innocently, right, um, a refusal to um, even have the ba barest interaction with black people, you're teaching children a lesson, right? right, right? Even a basic reading. And I think, you know, and that's not an indictment of those parents. It's actually, I think, it, should de it demands a mirror of us. I can think of corollaries along the lines of class amongst black people. Mm. Right, in terms of who is seen, you know, for mm. those of us who are bourgeois, who is seen as acceptable to interact with, who'd, who, is, who, are, who are their efforts to distance ourselves from. Right? Yeah. Um, so those, you know, what seem like rather modest moments, or, or moments that are resolved, that actually are not at all resolved. Right. You know? Because we, well, we resolve the moment, but not the underlying yes. drama. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what that, what that leads into is something else I want to talk to you about, um, which is uh, whiteness, mm -hmm. which is um, a, I feel like at least, and this doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount of progress, but that there's that word yes. is out there, mm -hmm. and there is... I would say a dawning realization um, uh, that, that whiteness is a thing, that it's a construct, just like race is a construct, that white people yeah. also must acknowledge that they have race, that the race discussion is not about everybody else. Right. Um, I mean, there's so many, so many angles to this, and I want to I hear your... I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, and I think yeah. you've just wandered into it. Yes. Right? But there's something you wrote about in here that I found really useful, mm. which was the analogy of um, foot binding. Mm. You said that you have this, this fascination with foot binding, um, 
as a cultural uh, practice, practice yeah. in China. Um, and you said whiteness is a potent form of binding. Yeah. So would you kind of uh, tease that out, that right. imagery? Um, I mean, I think that it is a constriction. Um, it cuts off, you know, to shift the metaphor a little bit, but it's like foot binding. It cuts off the blood supply, right? Uh, it disciplines it disciplines or threatens to discipline white people out of deep identification with other human beings, which I think is the natural state of things. I'm always um, struck by how often people act as though racial differentiation is natural. I, you know, that that's sort of a natural, I don't think that's natural, actually. I think the natural condition is for human beings to actually have the capacity to identify and resonate with one another. I think the, the mm. creation of whiteness actually has done, does something to close that off. That it creates the differentiation. It creates the differentiation and it creates the sense of potential terror in not holding the boundary. I mean, it's not incidental that there were laws against black and white people playing checkers together in Alabama. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just it's such an absurd thing. Right. But it was implemented to, to discipline, particularly working class white people, from identifying with people who are much closer to them than the elites right. who are making laws, right? And so, um, so I do think about sort of the prospect of the emancipation of white people from a, from a white imagination, right, to a human one that isn't um, sort of bound up in this identity that often doesn't get articulated, but one is reminded of constantly, right? So whether it's, you know, uh, whether it's media, television, right, um, how we're educated, right, the, the way that, I mean, even the genealogies, I'm often telling my kids things like, you know, it's sort of strange that Greece is figured as the beginning point for um, sort of uh, the, the history of the West for Americans when there's such a tiny Greek American population, right? That is, or how, or how, or how marginalized um, Greece is actually currently in the West, right? How vulnerable Greece. So right. there's this, all these mythologies that right. are taken at face value that are really about it's imaginative. This idea of whiteness. It's an act of right. leap of imagination. Right, and we could yeah. imagine differently. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a piece of it. I will say this, though, um, and it's a little bit off topic, but it relates mm -hmm. to your question. So, um, you know, several years ago, when people started showing the videos of the, of whatever, unarmed black people being killed right, by police officers or, or yeah. others, right? And there was this idea that, well, if white people know, they just don't know, and if, we, if you show these, if people know, then something will change. Um, and, you know, I was skeptical of it then. Uh, I'm very sure now that um, actually the repetition, and you never know, I mean, the repetition of seeing a group, a particular group of people suffering may have the capacity to make one identify with their suffering, but it also may deepen stigma. It has the prospect of actually saying, oh, yeah, those are the people who, the kind of people who just I get see. killed. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's, and we know that's another true. way to differentiate. It becomes, and, and, um, and to me, the question is not so much the visual. I mean, and there's lots of sort of different ways to think about this, but 
I don't think that the issue was whether or not it was seen visually. I think the issue is the disbelief, right, about the depth of inequality in this country and the depth of racialized violence in this country. And that disbelief is actually at the cornerstone of the structure of racialization. We can mm -hmm. see different versions of it in the 18th and 19th century. Black people don't have souls. Black people won't work unless they're disciplined in certain ways. Black people are fundamentally criminal, right? All of these ideas that still circulate in various ways, that's what has to be, you yeah. know, that's the, the stuff of it. It's not whether there's a visual recognition of it. It's the ideological commitment that's mm -hmm. at the cornerstone of American history that has to be kind of it has to be broken down. And videos, tragic as they are, are not going to do that. I think, um, hang on, I'm gonna hold this thought. Um, this is the moment for you to um, ask your questions or, or pass the questions in. Um, what was I gonna say now? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's so helpful and useful. Mm to focus in on the disbelief yeah. as the thing to be working with. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, you say, to come back to this foot-binding analogy, you, you were just kind of, again, doing this thought experiment. You, know, you said, and I wonder, you were talking about foot-binding, you said, and then I wonder what happened when, in a cultural upheaval, these self-same women who'd been told all their lives that this was the way to be beautiful and respectable and noble, these self-same women were told foot-binding was over. Yeah. They could barely walk. Right. Binding doesn't let you get free without serious wounding. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, <laughs> uh, I think we would do an ethical wrong if we didn't acknowledge that there will be enormous growing pains, right? And there are also, there are growing pains now that are, you know, I mean, one of the things that, you know, research shows that is, is that if you tell um, white constituents or potential voters about the coming ethnic plurality, right, that there will no longer be, it'll be, we won't, it won't, United States in, in however many years will no longer be a majority white nation, it'll right. be sort of a collection of various groups, right, everybody will be a minority, right. Um, the, that leads to increased conservatism amongst white voters. I mean, that is a huge, I mean, that's a, that's just a demographic shift, right, which is a very different question than a sort of political or moral or ethical shift, right? But even that um, causes a great deal of discomfort. Um, it's a transformation that I'm not sure how that will play out in this country, but, right. you know, it's, change is hard. Yeah, no, Whether that, deliberate or not, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, we don't, we don't deal, just biologically we're learning. We, physiologically it's stressful and it's more stressful for some than for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, and I just think that it's important to, and I, I, I mean, I try to do this with myself in this book, um, but also to acknowledge that, you know, we, we all experience the difficulties of change and transformation and tragedy. Some get it much worse than others. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I want to actually read a little bit from... Um, from your book, Breathe. Um, 
we, as I've said before, are, we're at this, and I, and I will come back to the subject of grace, which is the theme for this week, but start this reading a little earlier okay. in the book. Um, Mothers like me once had no recourse, mm. no power to hold off the lash, to hold on indefinitely, to fight back when they crushed your heart and life. I think back then I would have been like Frederick Douglass's mother. I would have bared one of my scars. <clears throat> I would have bared one of my scars, like the one on my knee from a bit of flying charcoal at a cookout when I was six, and told you to remember me by it in the crowd of endless labor, to know me by it. And if I didn't have a landmark on my flesh, I would have made one for you, carved it into my right arm, a knifed X for your mother. So, you know, this life we have is grace. Mm -hmm. In the Catholic tradition, there is a form of grace, the sanctifying one, that is the stuff of your soul. It is not defined by moments of mercy or opportunity. It is not good things happening to you. Rather, it is the good thing that is in you, regardless of what happens. You carry this down through generations, same as the epigenetic trauma of a violent slave master society. But the grace is the bigger part. It is what, it, it is what made the ancestors hold on so that we could become. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I, one of the things I, so earlier this summer I was in, this year I was in um, Florence and I saw Michelangelo's um, Pieta, and one of the questions I ask and breathe is how many Pietas, right? Mm. So we see this repetition of, of mothers who have had their sons taken away, and I, I am um, resistant to the the, the um, repetition of that could have been my, my son because it's not, and it's you know we shouldn't sort of rob um, the moment with our self-interestedness mm. um, of the tragedy. Right, we're supposed to surround the people who have been confronted the tragedy um, with love, but. There is something um, that is carried through history and generations of the most devastating tragedies, and we live despite them, and we live with them. Um, and I think the question is not, you know, there, there's a part of it that is, um, what does that tell us about how to be human better? Um, that ought to be, we ought to be sort of listening to history in the world. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, um, with Toni Morrison's passing that I have been thinking about and talking about is that what her work has done for, for me and I think for many others is to really have us sit in the ordinariness of, of tragedy of devastation. With historical awareness, right, so that there are specific forms of tragedy that we have a responsibility to respond to, to act, but it's also there's something universal. 
Nice. Um, and, to, and to be present with both of those. Um, and to not, I mean, I, I, you know, so every time I go through some heartbreak or something devastating, I, I go back to her work and I read the entire body mm -hmm. of the work. Mm -hmm. In part because, you know, there's something, and I do think this is peculiarly American, where we're always trying to sort of find our way to the charmed life where no disaster ever happens. Yeah. Well, I think it's a human thing, but Americans have really We're, taken it really as their calling. We're really experts at it, yeah. right? I mean, we just can't, like, we can't even talk about death. Yeah. Um, but we all are going to be there, right? Um, we're all going to, and, and, and God willing, you know, every meaningful relationship that we have in our lives will end. And I say God willing because that means that we have loved and then lost, right? We've loved long enough to, and we've lived long mm. enough to love mm. and lose, right? Mm. Um, every relationship, even the, the very, the most important ends in death, yeah. right? Um, or uh, another kind of fracture. And so, um, you know, the, all of this to say is are really fundamentally human questions, right? And if... So there's these social questions, the social and political questions about how we organize our society better. But I think we also have to tap into the kind of, the universality of them, to even begin to answer them, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason, I mean, my favorite metaphor is the one of guitar strings, right? So if you are sitting next to someone who's, and you both have guitars, and if you're close enough and you strum and the wind makes the, the, the strings on the other guitar reverberate, right? That to me, that's a metaphor of like, you know, of the, the capacity of human beings to connect with one another. And that's what I think we have to be looking for. Mm -hmm. and, I, and not in a Pollyanna-ish sense, because no. that's hard. But I don't know what else we do. And that is, for each and every one of us, interior work. Mm -hmm. As much as oh, it yes. is work that we do in concert and in That's right. conversation. That's right. And in shared life. Yeah. No, it's interior. And it's, I think, you know, it's why um, I love all forms of art, but there's something very special about reading, right? Because you are entering into a world with other human beings, but it's very interior, right? There's something yeah. very intimate about it. And so there's this, um, you know, I mean, it's why I'm a writer, right? There's a possibility to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, open this up, and I'll say again what's going to happen is that we're actually going to come back and finish the radio conversation for, you know, 10 minutes um, after the Q&A. But right now, we will open this up for a back and forth in the room. Okay. Um, it's as if we plan this. Our first question from Twitter is uh, about that interior work, and one of our questioners asks, do you have any advice on how to advocate for justice without resorting to attacks? It feels like the more I see in our world, the easier it is to let hate into my heart and unintentionally embody what I seek to help stop. Yeah, oh, so that's, I think that's a really uh, important question. Attack is such a complicated word nowadays because um, <laughs> so often what is a kind of frank confrontation is experienced as attack, especially on social media because people feel so um, kind of invested in this presentation of themselves in the public. So when it's confronted, people get really defensive. Um, it's one of the sort of perils of the social media age. Um, 
So I do think that we have a responsibility to be able to hear, to listen, to sit when people confront us. Um, and on the other hand, um, well, I think, in, in, actually not on the other hand, and likewise, there's a lot of good reason to be furious right now. <laughs> uh, and I don't, there is such a thing as righteous rage, righteous anger, and we, uh, I don't want to dismiss that. The question is just, how do you experience that and also channel it into something productive, which, require, which is slow work? You know, we want, and, it's, and a part of the problem is the way that we've been taught the histories of social movements, yeah. right? So everything is this like dramatic event, this dramatic march, this dramatic, you know, whether bra burning, whatever, right? Yeah. And in point of fact, it's always slow work. It's deliberate work. It's work that In point of fact, the marches came after 15 and 150 years. Right. Of work. Right. Right. Day in, day out. We don't tell that story of a long arc. And it has to be, I mean, we have, that's one of our, you know, I'm always thinking like, what are the, what's the function of history? And part of the function of history is for us to move forward. So, I mean, I think that speaks to um, thinking about how we tell history in order to put it to work today. Yeah. I feel like something that you just said that's important that is that we, I think that's, it's a feature of this messy moment mm-hmm. that we actually have to live in that discomfort of, the, of righteous rage, which needs to have its place, and also knowing that we need to try to be listeners and stay in conversation, and, and it's not going to feel, it's not going to work all the time. Right. It's not going to work all the time. Some conversations are going to absolutely break down. Yeah. Right, yeah. An- another question related to channeling. Um, what are your thoughts about reparations and formal reconciliation to begin to potentially move our country towards a place of grace and healing? Yeah. Uh, I'm supportive of reparations. Um, I think there's lots of, there's a wide variety of potential models for it, but I will say this, reparations will not eradicate the systems and structures of racial inequality. So for example, in my second book, one of the things I wrote about is uh, the process of disaccumulation, which is like, so my grandmother, you know, bought a home in 1964, and it's probably worth, I don't know, $18,000 $18,000 today, right? Because of the neighborhood. It was the third black family to live on the block. There was immediate white flight. Um, it's, so it's now in an area of concentrated poverty. So the way race functions has an economic dimension, right? Homes, neighborhoods that have a lot of black people in are, are devalued irrespective of the quality of house, all these sorts of things because there are black people there. You know, I, I describe it as the social economy of race. So reparations, so for example, if it's a monetary grant, right, doesn't get away from the structure of racialization. That money is going to be worth less in a generation by virtue of the fact that disaccumulation is part of the operation of race. You know, just as women, you know, women are, are paid less, black people are paid less, things associated with black people are valued less, et cetera, et cetera. Um, That process will continue. So I don't, so my only hesitation is to think of reparations as a cure-all. It's not, Um, it it would not be. Um, And yet I do think given the unbelievable wealth, I mean the wealth of the nation is built on King Cotton, 
right? That's black labor. So, of course, reparations make sense. To take it back down to a more personal level, going back to the child at the arts and crafts table, if their parents were able to look you in the eye, can you imagine for us the conversation you would have liked to have? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, honestly, I haven't thought about the substance of the conversation. I've thought about the fact of conversation, the idea that um, acknowledging me and my children as members of their community, so hello, would be meaningful. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is not, and that's, and it's, I should just say, it's a, it's a repeated instance. So if anybody, you know, you talk, anybody here, if you talk to the black people in your life, you will hear stories upon stories of being misnamed, misrecognized. I mean, I worked yeah. at an institution for seven years, and I promise you, every time, this is not Princeton's, my previous institution, every time I stepped off campus, the majority of my colleagues would not recognize me on the street. I would say hello to people, and they wouldn't say hello back, right? That's, um, and again, liberal, progressive people. Right, so there's something about to, to understand that there are people for whom, who look at me and see black, not Imani, <laughs> black, right? I mean, it's as crude as that. Um, I mean, that's serious work that has to be done. Uh, and it requires, or there was, I'll, I'll tell one more anecdote, I'm sorry, but this is just, it was kind of funny to me. So I had a, a colleague at one point who I saw at the train station. We lived around the corner from each other, and he said to me, hello, Kim, who's behind me. My name is Imani, right? <laughs> he said, hello, Kim. And then he said it again, and he said it a third time, and I said, I'm not Kim. <laughs> right? I mean, and Kim is a, an, a wonderful person, but she's literally six inches shorter than me, um, shaved head, totally different complexion different build. And, he, and then he was so embarrassed he didn't speak to me anymore, which was not the appropriate response. You know, I mean, and I understood his embarrassment, but the question is, how do you work? And I think that the same thing with these, I, I am sure these parents were embarrassed. But working through the embarrassment as opposed to actually further isolating mm. me and my children would be a much more appropriate response. Mm. As a cradle Catholic, how has or does your faith tradition helped you frame a new vision for living a life with grace? Or you talked about the influence of other faith traditions in your life. How have they worked together to form your vision of a graceful life? Yeah. Um, so uh, I do think that there's something, you know, I. I, I I have not, I did not, I have not raised my children as Catholics, and one of the things I talk about in a somewhat angsty fashion and, and breathe is like, have I messed up by not sort of yeah. giving my children this sort of anchor in religion? And a lot of it just has to do with the doctrine of the church and disagreeing with the doctrine. You know, I, there are all these examples for me 
and spirit and religious practice that are extraordinary. The celebration of mass, right? And all of the incredible beauty, the scent, the ritual, what it means to speak with other people, professions of faith. It's like chanting, right? Mm -hmm. In another tradition. Um, The emulation of the lives of the saints, right? The recognition of the grace of Mary, what the, you know, all of these things that are deeply important to me for imagining how to live my life. And yet, you know, it's also an institution that has all these doctrines of exclusion um, that I cannot abide, right? And that, I mean, it's very similar to being American, right? You know, there's all these beautiful things in this. Um, And I just, I had this extraordinary experience actually at a Pentecostal church. My friend's, a dear friend of mine's mother passed away and I went to the service. And I hadn't been in a Pentecostal church before. I'd been in Baptists and AME and Methodist, all these, all these various. Uh, and I was absolutely blown away, largely because of the virtuosity of the women in the church. Mm-hmm. So these women, many of them elderly, they're singing, the piano playing. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable, um, the extraordinary art in that moment. And this extraordinary art for this church, right? It wasn't an exchange right. for right. money or recognition. It was for this community. And I was like, this is the best uh, of what it means to be human in celebration of a life, right? And sending someone home, a homegoing service. And I said, you know, and so for me, it's like something is wrong when on the one hand, this extraordinary beauty and grace also finds itself attached to um, denigration of people because of their sexuality um, or because of their gender or um, because of their family structure. On the one hand, and on the other hand, that we have an idea of the sole purpose of art being money or accumulation, right? That there's something that we've done to the most beautiful parts of being human that's ugly in, in at least two different ways. And so I'm just trying to draw out, right, the beauty, right? Try to distill the beauty and use it um, in a way that doesn't feel like I'm part of the engine of producing human suffering. That may be a, an aspiration that is foolhardy, but I'm trying. I think we have time for one more, and, and that is, um, you talked about the history inside of us, and, and I think the questioner has a, a sense of the weightiness of that. Um, we here have been wrestling with how do we take what we're learning and act upon it? Yeah. How do you do that in your life and not get paralyzed by all that clearly you know? How does that not weigh you down? Mm. Uh, to be really honest, it's, it's a combination of my grandmother, my late grandmother, and my children, right? So um, every once in a while, people will say to me, you know, how can you be hopeful? And I think I have, a, and I think as a mother, I have an ethical responsibility to be hopeful, right? I mean, that's, you know, the task is to uh, invest in um, in our children as a way of investing in the world and investing in humanity. And I, 
And I think for my, you know, my grandmother, and I, I say this in the book too, it's a cliche for those of us, you know, black people from the South with working class roots were always like, my grandmother was the smartest person I ever knew, but I really <laughs> do mean it. Um, she, you know, this is a woman who did not complete high school, had 12 uh, children, cleaned homes, sent all 12 children to college. Um, yeah, I mean, she was extraordinary. And, um, and, and had a brilliant husband, but who had struggles of his own. He passed away before I was born. And, and she got up every day. You know, she lived a prayerful life. Uh, I went through a period in my life where I tried to sort of pray unceasingly. I did the Ignatian exercises in the Catholic tradition, and I was, but a lot of it was modeled after her, right? And so she would say, thank God for his many blessings every day. Even in the most difficult of moments, um, she read every day. Um, she saw a sense of meaning in every meal and in every interaction. Um, and I do think there's something about a life in which you understand the meaning of these small moments of grace that actually wards against the feeling of being overwhelmed. It's going to come. Right, but then she also, and this is one more thing, when she had those moments, she would rely on her friends, right? So she would call um, Mrs. Stewart or Mrs. McCall, and they would talk, and they would talk her through, you know, when she was feeling overwhelmed. And so she had, she modeled intimacy, she modeled friendship, she modeled um, the ideal for me of maternal love. Um, and so I sort of feel like I'm living uh, I'm living through her, but I'm also living what I think, there's a big part of me that is trying to be what she would have been had the circumstances of her life been different. I'm trying, I'm not, I'm not her. You know, Nita Garner Perry was extraordinary, but I'm trying, mm. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me um, if what are like recurring themes, right, or, or ideas that pop up everywhere. And I said, you know, it doesn't really work that way. But but what I find, because, because I, I feel like what we're trying to do in our project is kind of listen to the culture and listen to the world as much as we're listening to the wise people we're drawing out yeah. in. So what happens is that suddenly something surfaces and then it's in every conversation for a little yes, while. Right. And right now, um, what that is, which you just so echoed some things that happened in the conversation yesterday with two young women um, working in a very different sphere, not Princeton professors, not Imani mm -hmm. Perry. Um, but but what, what's, what's surfacing right now, and you know, more recently also with a, gar with a poet and a gardener, Ross Gay, I don't know if you know him. Yes. Yeah. Um, which feels countercultural is um, an insistence on hope and an insistence on joy and taking delight wherever and whenever, and that those are muscles for inhabiting yes. these difficult times. And what your grandmother knew, that wisdom, that, you know, it's not the American thing of pulling, you know, pulling up your own joy bootstraps. Right. No. It's, it's about also understanding that we, that we can't carry those things alone. Any, any of us can't carry them on any given day. Uh, absolutely. And it's funny, I, I, I use, um, 
uh, in my book, Vexy Thing, a poem that Ross Gay wrote about the joy of a woman complimenting him on his feet, <laughs> how beautiful his feet were, or are. And you know that to, um, and it's hard, to, it's hard to talk about without, I think for some people, it's sounding like an evasion. But it's really, the, in some part, it's the thing we're fighting for, right? I mean, it's, it's the human experience that we're fighting for the proliferation of, right? So that life is not defined primarily for so many people by suffering and violence and hardship, but actually that thing that we, that all of us possess, which is this incredible capacity for joy and beauty, um, uh, that is not, that is, that, is not ego-driven, right? So we are in this sort of, um, we are not of the Instagram generation of, in this room, <laughs> right, by and large, but um, the Instagram generation is with us, and there's a lot of display mm -hmm. of joy. Or there's <laughs> a lot right. of kind of quick pleasure, right, a rush of excitement. Joy is something much deeper than that, right? It's mm -hmm. not surface. It's something that reaches deep inside that, um, that it, at the most beautiful moments is a moment of connection with, if not another person, with the earth, right? So I watch my, my cousin who, we have a very kind of similar disposition, my cousin Jillian, who um, is gardening with her children all the time, right? And she shares, you know, the, the sunflowers and the tomatoes and the beans and the basil and that that is... Um, both life-giving, literally speaking, but also spiritually speaking, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I think that that kind of resistant joy is essential. And yeah, it's essential could, for you us. You can applaud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you, you, you wrote, um, as you're writing to your sons in Breathe, um, there is still a future, as harrowing as it might be, I admit. I try to give you everything in the face of this, every bit of sweetness to indulge and to spoil, to delight. There is enough of the other stuff for everyone's lifetimes a million times over. Yeah. Because there's something that, you know, and I don't, <laughs> there's this sensibility that's like, well, let's, you know, we have to arm kids and prepare them for the, and, and discipline and, and I just, life is hard enough. I mean, I just want them, I want them to be moral and ethical human beings. So there's constant, I think we all have a responsibility with young people and not just children, but we have the responsibility to, to experience it from elders, to listen yes. and also to teach, um, but also to, to lavish with love. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a big part of care today. I'm not, I'm not taking any of that away from them. They are emotionally spoiled people, my kids. <laughs> yeah. I would like for, to close with you reading from your book. Um, but I think first, so this is um, from near the beginning. Um, uh, and but I think you have to explain your references to the Greek god of Theseus. Okay. Okay. Wait. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, so I start with, uh, um, this part begins with a um, quotation from my mother. 
Um, Mima, your grandmother, said it this way, mothering black boys in America, that is a special calling. How do I meet it? What is it like? How do I meet this calling? Is it like cultivating diamonds, pressure that is so tight that it turns you, black, into something white and shiny and deemed precious and valuable? That's no good. Do I fuel it like coal, something that is to be burned up and used for the warmth of others, or the consolation prize on Christmas? That's no good either. Do I cover my home in the blood of a proverbial sacrificial goat, praying that we are passed over, that the bloodthirsty fear lands at someone else's door? I am tempted, but I know that prayers don't prevent tragedy. They hold you up as you pass through it, sometimes. Is it like stalking through a labyrinth, breathless yet deliberate, avoiding the snow-white minotaur? Maybe I am Theseus. Was it ever so apparent that we need to have this reckoning? Maybe I am Theseus, a living vocation, but also simply living with beckoning. And that is what it feels like. Its tenor and tone shift with the shadows of each day, but it is always there. Sometimes it screeches, sometimes it trills and warbles, sometimes it is a perfect, sweet pitch. Thank you, Imani Perry. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.